You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. Of course, people are in different places. Last week we saw Jesus meet a guy who had to be asked, Do you want to be made well? This week, Jesus meets a gal who knows that if she's going to live, she needs to ask, uh, she needs to hear Jesus say to him, I do not condemn you. And if we know the ministry of Jesus, we know that even our healing begins with forgiveness. And so Jesus invites us this morning to experience his forgiveness. What does that look like? Let's open our Bibles to John chapter 8. Our text is found on page 870 of the Pew Bible. It's uh, John chapter 8, verses 2 through 11. And uh, if you're able, would you stand with me and let's read God's word aloud together as every member is a minister and gets to read the sacred text as one. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading his holy word. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, This woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Seems to me that Jesus is meeting a gal here who has a history, but whose future is very much uncertain. She's at a very uh, delicate moment in her life history. Her biography may have been full up to this point, but there are not many more pages to come. She may not be able to get past her past. They say when you and I face a moment like this, our whole life will pass in front of our eyes. I don't know if that's true. But I do know that this woman is painfully aware that there are parts of her history, most especially recently, that she deeply regrets. Everybody's got a history. Everybody has a history. And we're not always proud of every one of its chapters. We keep it to ourselves, generally, until we get caught, as this woman is caught. I got caught uh, not too long ago. I, myself, have, of course, a history. I have dirt on my uniform. 
Try not to show it to people, but every once in a while I get exposed. When I was young and irresponsible, I was young and irresponsible. And as a 20-year-old young adult right out of college, I won't say I left a trail of relational disasters in my wake, but there were a few. There was one friend, and it didn't end well. I hurt her, and I didn't reconcile with her, though I was a young Christian at that time with a new faith. How would I know that our paths would cross again? How would I know that she would take a job at a university? How would I know that she would stay with that career for decades? She would be promoted again and again. How would I know that I would get married and have a son? And that that son would want to go to college someday? How would I know that the very university that would inflame his heart and give him hope for his future would be the very one where she worked? How would I know that she would send a letter and say, Hello, I am your admissions officer, specially assigned to your case. And I know you have some questions, George. Did you tell your son? No, I didn't. And he was wondering why all of a sudden the perfect college was so, so far exceeded by so many other schools. Uh, Dad kept pushing on me. What's up with that? And I know you're also going to want to know, did he get in? And the answer is no, he did not get in. I wish I could have gone back and done things differently. Everybody's got a history, and we oftentimes wish we could go back and do it over and make a change. If you're young or you have a child, you may know Beverly clearly. She's a great author of children's books, and she's got a character, Ramona Quimby. And in one of the stories, Ramona gets curious. She's in a funk on the side of the bathtub upstairs, and she looks at the sink, and there's this beautiful, uh, mostly full tube of toothpaste, red and white, and sparkling with the slightest dent from a single squeeze. And she's possessed of this urge to squeeze from the center and to squeeze hard. She said, maybe if I did that, it would make me feel better. And she gives it a try. And here's why, how I kind of imagine it happening. She squeezes and she feels better. And she squeezes again and she feels better. And she's watching this paste uncoil in the sink. It looks like a snake. And she goes, how long is this snake after all? And she begins to, to uh, lay it out across the counter and around the bathroom. Pretty soon it's weaving through the jungle of the carpet. When all of a sudden, above the noise of the jungle, she hears her mother. <laughs> Ramona! Dinner time! And then Bezos, the footprints, her sister on the hallway, coming closer and closer to the doorknob. And she's got this spent tube, and she's commanding the snake to jump back in the tube before she gets in great trouble. And, of course, you can't go back and do it over again. Everybody's got a history. And sometimes we can't get past our history to the future. Bruce Springsteen sings a song called My Father's House. And you can listen to his live performance of that song on YouTube. And if you do, you'll, you'll be interested in his intro, the way he sets the song up. He tells his audience about uh, how he used to go back to his hometown in New Jersey. He'd be up late at night, unable to sleep, and get in his car and he'd drive and he'd go back to that town and he'd drive by the house that his parents raised him in. He said, after a while, I got doing it again and again and again to the point it was three or four times a week driving by that house. 
He went to a therapist and he asked the therapist, what the heck am I doing? And the therapist says, well, I'd like you to tell me, Mr. Springsteen, what it is you think you're doing. He says, I'm paying you. You tell me what's going on. And the therapist said, well, what you're doing is that something bad happened. And you're going back. You're thinking that you can make it right again. Something went wrong and you keep going back to see if you can fix it or somehow make it right. And Bruce tells his audience, and I sat there and I said, that's what I'm doing. And the therapist said, well, you can't. You can't go back. And then he begins to play the guitar and the song starts. And if you don't know the words of my father's house, it's a song about a dream that Springsteen has. He's a child again and he goes back to that town. He goes back to his father's house. He goes running down the broken path, imagining he can fix the tears that he put in his father's heart, only to reach the door and be told he's gone. It's too late. He sings in the final line of the song, My father's house shines hard and bright. It stands like a beacon calling me in the night, calling and calling so cold and alone, shining across this dark highway where our sins lie unatoned. What's in your history? I don't ask that question to dredge up the shame. Heaven knows we have enough in our lives already. But if you take this passage seriously and Jesus Christ, who is its Lord, then he wants you to know not your shame, but what you do with it. If you don't know about your history and you can't expose it and unload it into his presence, you'll never find the freedom to which he invites you. You'll never find true hope in Jesus Christ. See, our culture tells us, you're okay. I'm okay, you're okay, we know everybody's okay. But the truth is, you know we're not okay. Over years of pastoral ministry, I have the privilege of walking with people inside a circle of confidence. And there I've learned that we are not okay. And that if you want to know what, what these people that are sitting on the pews next to you in the church are like, they're very much the same as the people that you ride the bus with in the world around you. We're no different. I, I'm not okay. I have dirt on my uniform, too. We are people who have betrayed our friends, fudged the numbers, lied to neighbors, injured people in accidents. We've neglected our children, cheated on tests, withheld help from the needy. We've destroyed lives. We've misused our sexuality. We've pushed others to the brink of disaster. We've hoarded. We've gossiped. We've stolen. We've lied. And we don't know what to do with it other than to feel horrible and stuff it down inside and hope, just hope that you can get a good night's sleep tonight and that it won't come and wake you up. Jesus wants so much more for you and for me. What does Jesus do with our history? What's he like? How would he speak to you about your past? The parts that you'd rather not speak with anybody about. What would he say to you? Well, I think this text gives us a beautiful window. It may be familiar to you. You know the story. They're these religious experts who take a woman and they make her stand. They've broken into a bedroom somewhere in Jerusalem. An angry group of 
scribes and Pharisees, almost certainly they're men. And they've hauled her half-dressed across the cold streets of Jerusalem, hunting for Jesus. Where is he? Not that surprised to find him teaching in the temple. It's early morning, the dawn is just coming up, but a crowd already has gathered around this rabbi as he sits on the ground and teaches his pupils. And, and this horde, this mob of religious experts breaks through this circle and they take this woman, they shove her cold to stand right in the middle of the circle, shivering in front of Jesus. And they say to him, Rabbi, what would you do with this woman? We caught her in the act of adultery and Moses tells us that you should stone such as these. See, the text tells us they say this to trap Jesus, to, to test him. And here's the trap. There really are only two alternatives for Jesus. On the one hand, he can turn his back on Moses and his law and in so doing forfeit his reputation. Or he can turn his back on Rome and its law and in so doing forfeit his life. We have historical records that tell us around the time of A.D. 30, the, the Jews under Roman occupation lost the right of capital punishment as a way of enforcing justice on any of their criminals. They're not allowed to stone anybody. Jesus looks at this horde and they've got stones in their hands and they're ready to unload them and end this woman's life. Let her past be the end of her. Jesus will not turn his back on Moses or his or or he will not turn his back on Rome but he will give up his reputation and he will give up his life in a way that these men and even this woman can hardly imagine and he'll do it because Jesus wants to forgive he wants to forgive her he wants to forgive them he wants to forgive me, and he wants to forgive you. What do you make of this story? It's a, certainly a beautiful story, but how do you interpret it? There's several interesting elements to it. I want to suggest that there are two really common mistakes. Whatever you do with this text, don't do these two things. The first is condemning the condemners. You don't want to condemn the condemners in this story. And this is what virtually all of the commentators do. Read the commentaries, and, and, and you see that what they do is they try to relieve the tension of this trap that Jesus is in by turning it against the condemners, those who hold the stones. They, they'll point out that uh, they're violating the law of Moses, which required two adulterers to be presented, not just the woman. This is patently unfair and a violation of the law in and of itself. Is this entrapment? They also uh, should know, commentators point out, that the people who are supposed to throw the stones first in a judicial case are those who were the witnesses. Which one of you, Jesus might have asked, sees himself as the witness? Did you set this up? And the commentators go on about this. They also are very interested in what it is that Jesus writes in the, in the dirt with his finger. And there are two opinions about that. Perhaps he writes a verse that condemns the condemners. And they would read the verse and go, wow, that one really is a gotcha verse. Or maybe he writes the list of, uh, of sins that these men have themselves committed to kind of level the playing field. I think if it mattered what Jesus wrote in the ground, he, the writer would have told us. But it's not the content of the writing, but the fact of the writing that seems to interest him. 
The important thing is that all of these strategies are some way of relieving the tension by saying, you know what, these people are just as bad. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't condemn, even condemners. It's like a friend of mine who's a young adult said recently, the other day I caught myself saying, that guy is so judgmental. You know? (laughs) You see, and that's the way we do it. And that's the way the condemners are doing. But that's not the way Jesus, he doesn't play that game. He doesn't fight judgment with judgment. Doesn't condemn the condemners. Jesus doesn't want to dismiss anybody from this circle. He wants to forgive them all. The other thing you don't want to do, the other mistake, is to judge the judgment. You know, our culture loves this passage, but I think it doesn't understand it. It's really easy to say, oh, Jesus is so great because for him, sin is not really that big of a deal. You know, and they kind of, Jesus gets himself a lot of likes, a lot of fans on this passage. But it's because our culture confuses the difference between tolerance and forgiveness. See, tolerance is when you say, it's really not that big of a deal. Adultery. What is adultery except, maybe it's a little indiscretion between two consenting adults. Who really gets hurt? You think about that for a second. You might even say, what is condemnational or judgment here and there? Everyone can get up on the wrong side of the bed and have a bad day and get a little bit grumpy. But, but Jesus doesn't insist that there's nothing gone wrong here. And Jesus doesn't invite us to stand in judgment over morality as though we get to decide what's good and what's bad and say, oh, adultery is not really a sin. Condemnation is not really a sin. You fill in the blank. It's not really a sin. We've lost the concept of sin in our day. It's some kind of a social construct or a psychological state for us. But there, be careful. There's a difference, as one writer says, between the law of the stop sign and the law of the fire. You could change the law of the stop sign. That is a social construct. But the law of the fire is a property of nature. And God, who created this world to bless and for life, he's told us what life looks like. And you can put your hand in the fire and you'll get burned. And he gets really sad when you and I experience pain. Jesus does not dismiss moral judgments. Jesus wants to forgive He wants so much more than that. So don't condemn the condemners or judge the judgment, but turn to the forgiveness of Jesus. What does Jesus do with our history? Well, he begins to draw. This is the only place, by the way, we ever see in the Bible, Jesus actually writes. We're told he writes in the dirt with his finger. He bends over. He stoops low to the ground and begins to draw. I think the first time it's for her. Because I think Jesus sees the penetrating attention that is shining on this poor, shivering woman. Yes, she's made a mistake, but she's already living on the margin of a very patriarchal society. And Jesus wants to step right in and deflect their condemnation away from her, draw their attention off of her. And he does so by drawing it on himself. It's just the way of Jesus. He draws condemnation away from people and into himself. That's what he does when he captures their attention and he writes and he keeps writing until they interrupt him and go, ahem, Jesus, did you hear our question? And now nobody's looking at her anymore. They're all looking at Jesus. And he says, well, let anybody who has never committed a sin throw the first stone. And then he draws again in the sand with his finger. I think this time he draws for the condemners. 
It, it gives them time. It slows this railroad down, this rush to judgment, so that they can reflect on their own history. And did you notice that the elders begin to leave? This is the wisdom of age. They are aware of the fact that they've got dirt on their uniform, too. And I've lived just long enough to have some chapters that I'm not proud of. Though I'm very proud of my life. One by one, you begin to hear the sound of stones dropping. And men are turning and they're leaving. And pretty soon it's just Jesus sitting there at the foot of this woman. And he stands up, the writer tells us, and he asks her, Isn't there anyone here to condemn you? And Jesus says, Then no, neither do I. I do not condemn you. And she can't imagine how this is possible. But you and I know that Jesus gives his reputation, he gives his life on the cross. This points to the cross of Jesus Christ that allows Jesus truly to forgive, not to condone sin, but to remove it and its consequences. He points to the cross. If you and I can unload our sin with Jesus, he will get us past our past and move you into a future. I do not condemn you, he says to you. I don't condemn you. Your sin doesn't drive me away. It may drive everybody else away, but it does not drive me away. You don't need to hide it from me. Will you unload your sin and expose it to me? Will you let me forgive you? Will you let me stand within the circle of your shame? You and I stand right there at the epicenter and say, I do not condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, that part makes us nervous because we know she's going to go and sin again. And I will, too, even after Jesus says, I forgive you today at this table. But remember who Jesus is. He tells Peter, when he asks, how many times do we have to forgive? Jesus says, seven times 70. That's the Jewish infinity. If Jesus tells Peter to, to forgive endlessly, don't you think he will do the same thing? He doesn't just forgive your past. He forgives your future. On the cross, Jesus Christ offers you total Immunity from judgment. That's, that's the absolutely incomprehensible, incredible, irresistible grace of Jesus Christ. It seems absolutely irresponsible. Can't just go around forgiving people. Jesus can and Jesus does. And he's eager to do it today. There's absolutely no reason today for any one of us to go home today not knowing for sure that we've absolutely been forgiven by Jesus Christ. If I were to expose to you who I really am, you'd pick up stones and you'd want to throw them at me. The Apostle Paul says, I am the chief of sinners. And I think I probably have him beat. The fact is, though, we all bring stones to church. Every one of us. White knuckling a stone. Not because we want to throw it at somebody else, but because we're ready to throw it at ourselves. And I throw a stone my own way every single day. And Jesus says, let me help you drop that stone. I forgive you. I forgive you. Unload your sin. You have no future in hiding. Ask any alcoholic how helpful it has been to hide the disease. The first step is to say, I am broken and I need forgiveness. A pastor committed adultery. It was a horrible thing. She turned her back on her husband. She turned her back on her three daughters. She turned her back on her church. She turned her back on her God. This is out of state and in a small town. Where can you go? She couldn't go anywhere without 
bumping into her own shame. She could not do anything. Eventually, she ended up in a deep depression, lying alone on her bed. Luckily, this particular pastor had a friend who believed in forgiveness, who got on a plane and flew to that town and went and made her food and slept in that home and, when needed, laid down beside her in her tears just to give witness to the presence of Jesus Christ, the one who forgives in her circle of shame. And she had to leave the ministry and she got counseling and she began a process of restoration. But it's been amazing recovery. Fortunately for her, she was married to a husband who also believed in the power of forgiveness. And he did not shut her out. Her children were furious at her. But here's the real litmus test. What happened to those girls? Those girls who had every reason to turn their back on mom, the church, and even God have grown in their faith. All three of them are going off into ministry. Why? Because they saw the reality of God in the forgiveness of their father for their mother. Jesus showed up in forgiveness. Jesus increased. And he wants to increase in our lives too. This sort of thing happens every day here at UPC. It's a wonderful, uh, gracious community. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be known by that grace? To be known that this is a place for broken people, for sinners, for people with dirt on their uniform, people who are not proud of their past or even their present, maybe don't even have great prospects for a future. Wouldn't it be wonderful if this is a place that's known, not because of our success, but because of Jesus' forgiveness? People say, I, I know why they're so joyful over there at UPC. I know why that small group has got so much joy when I visit it. It's because of forgiveness. Let me close with this little historical anecdote. Because, you know, we as a church, we have a history as well. And it was in 1959 that uh, we had a dedication ceremony, May 20th, at night. This building had been completed seven years earlier. But the finishing touch was the steeple. Uh, the spire, actually, that was going to go on top of the steeple. We see a lot of churches in the U District that have steeples but no spires. We went all the way and put the, ste- and put the spire on the steeple. Big crane, and we had uh, 15th Avenue shut down, and it, maybe some of you were there. The crowds were thick on 15th Avenue, and every eye was looking up and waited. And there was a big ca- dramatic countdown and a fanfare of trumpets. And then at the dramatic moment, total darkness. Someone was supposed to throw the switch, and the floodlights were supposed to go on and illuminate this new spire. Nothing happened. A couple of members uh, scrambled up onto the roof and tried to find a short circuit. And uh, the red-faced David Cowie pastor at the time regained his composure and had everybody start to sing hymns. And they were singing in the dark and waiting for the lights to get fixed. At the moment that they started to sing, the old rugged cross, at that moment, the lights slammed on and flooded. And you could see then this metal, small, discreet metal cross erected over this building. And in the, our newspaper, our newsletter at the time, the, uh, the University Presbyterian said, it's a small moment, but perhaps one of the most significant moments in the, in the, in the life of this, the history of this church was that moment. I think not just because the building was completed, but because somehow we discovered what it is we want to communicate to the rest of this community and even the world. And it's all on the cross of Jesus Christ. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame.
I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, let us hide no more and find the freedom of your words when you say to her and I believe to us, I do not condemn you. And then hear this wonderful invitation to a life we can't even understand before we begin to step into it. Go and sin no more. This speaks of a potential and a future in relationship to you that we so desperately need. You call us to live not in relationship to a law anymore, but in relationship to a living Savior who walks by our side, who loves us, who knows all about us, past, present, and future, and who is our guide. So take us by the hand. For those who have never come to faith in you, may today be the day that they say, I believe in Jesus. May he be my Savior. For all the rest of us, may we join them in walking with you in the newness of life. In his name we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.